some people kind of wonder, well, why are we talking about the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it is probably the most foundational uh, teaching uh, in the scriptures of, of Jesus that's in its entirety from beginning to end. Um, <clears throat> and in teaching it, there's, um, I, I think, in, and when we talk about our core values as a church, uh, one of those being authenticity, authentic. I, and I want us to I have this desire for us to be authentic Christ followers, um, being genuine. And part of the authenticity is not just being honest or saying, yeah, I'm a sinner and I screw up all the time. It's not just that kind of authenticity, but it's also the, the genuineness of, of being the genuine article of saying, yes, I am trying to be the things that Jesus called me to be as his follower. And, uh, and then, you know, when I think of also the, the value of full devotion to Jesus Christ, this is his picture, the Sermon on the Mount. It's his picture of what Christ followers are supposed to look like. And I, because of devotion to him, I, I want to do what he says. I want to do what he describes. I want to be who he desires me to be. So, uh, also, I, I think there's a lot in the Sermon on the Mount, and especially, I think, We've, we've hit on some of it with the Beatitudes, but just that really connects with our, our theme for this year of walking humbly with our God. And uh, humility uh, is not always something that comes easy, uh, especially for Americans. Um, but we always have this trouble of, of, with this. And, and some people have asked, well, how come I've never heard anybody teach or preach on the Sermon on the Mount before? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know the reasons, all the reasons for that. But I know that the Sermon on the Mount directly confronts our ideas about self and what we do with our self. And that is, is it's very confrontational and, and probably disturbing for some people. So uh, that might be one reason some people have avoided it. But um, I really, I really believe that this is a unique group of people here at Highland and God has assembled us uh, to really make a difference in this city and be the difference in this city. Um, you know, I, don't, I don't care, you know, you can vote for the guy who says change or you can vote for the guy who says reform. But I'll tell you what, I'm campaigning for Jesus and his, king, his kingdom because I believe that's where real change, real reform will come through him and through his kingdom. And, and so that's what this church is about, is promoting a different kingdom, not promoting the USA, although I love my country and uh, I love the land of my birth. But um, that's, we, we know somebody who can empower us to change and empower us to reform and bring that to us, what we can't do on our, by ourselves. And, and the past few weeks, we've looked at the first part of the Sermon on the Mount contained in Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus speaks of the qualities that he envisions in his followers, to, he envisions them to possess. And uh, we call these uh, qualities the Beatitudes. Uh, Jesus uh, then spoke of how possessing these qualities changes our relationship to the world, salt and light. And his emphasis is on being overdoing. But Jesus begins to describe uh, the difference between actions that flow from internal change and the difference between that and the opposite, where actions are solely external and they're not from the heart. 
And his illustrations show how his teaching is in harmony with the Old Testament scriptures, that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And that the Pharisees' teaching is not in alignment with his teaching. And, it, and the Pharisees' teaching is not about a desire to know God or to love God or to love his commands. So at that point in Jesus' message, uh, where we label it, where it starts into chapter 6, um, after this point, there's a shift in Jesus' message. And he begins to give a picture of the Christ follower living his or her life in the presence of God. How do we know that? Well, repeatedly, Jesus speaks of God the Father. And the emphasis in this, this whole portion in chapter 6 is children in relationship to their father. Uh, from verses uh, 1 through 18, there's, there's how children of the father nurture their souls and keep their direct relationship to God healthy. And in verses 19 through 34, Jesus speaks of how children of the Father walk through this life in relation to the cares of this world, what we eat, drink, wear, uh, shelter, those sort of things. So I want you to know that, that this message series, I mean, we've, we've kind of had the sections mapped out so that we could do all the creative pieces with the filming and stuff like that. And so I want you to know that uh, next week, when we talk about the cares of this world, that wasn't planned by us. I know that everyone's thinking about their stocks and their retirement and their college fund for their kids and how it's all disappearing right now as Wall Street's going crazy. Um, and so I just want you to know, um, I, I know that it's, there's some scary and times and fear and stuff like that, but I really do feel like what we're going to be talking about next week uh, from chapter six really applies to where we're at in life right now. But uh, right now we're looking at verses 1 through 18. And in this portion of his sermon, Jesus speaks of the beautiful and the sublime part of our life in the presence of God. And then he speaks later in the, in the other verses, he speaks of the ordinary and mundane things that we walk out in this life in God's sight. So in this chapter, you're going to see that Jesus is really speaking to us about what practical living is like for a Christ follower and a, a child of the Father, someone who has already had their life turned upside down by the Lord and, and encountered grace. And again, uh, I say it again, Sermon on the Mount is Jesus speaking to his followers and it's for those who have encountered grace and have been adopted into the family of God. Now, if you're here today and you're just checking out, what is the Christian faith about? I'm here to investigate what do Christians say, what do Christians do when they go to church. That's cool. You can still listen to this and, and go and get a, an outside perspective and go, okay, this is what Jesus says his followers are to be like. And, and you can hold uh, churches and, and Christ followers to that standard because that is the standard we are to be held by is Jesus' word. So it's, it's still, you can still listen and still take in from this, all right? But um, when you read from chapter 6, try to note, uh, when, when you look at this, every time Jesus tells you about your father or your father in heaven, and as before in chapter 5, what, what's taught here cannot be lived apart from a relationship with God. I'll say it again. What's taught here in the Sermon on the Mount can't be lived apart from a relationship with God, right? It'll just be frustrating if you try to do it without God. Um, in this portion of his teaching, uh, Jesus gives three examples. Uh, there's uh, uh, praying, uh, giving, and fasting. 
And there are three examples of righteous living, or in other words, three examples of living in right relationship with the Father. Uh, but, but there's a general principle that he gives first that applies to the, these examples. And he says this in, in chap, chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. See, there are things that we practice when we walk in the righteousness given by Christ. And Jesus starts with identifying the difficulty in these practices. Uh, the first difficulty is, is there's this thing uh, that he talked about before, about being light and people seeing your good deeds and then they praise your Father in heaven. Well, at the same time, uh, you're not to be doing things to attract attention to yourself, he says here in, in this verse. So now this isn't a, a contradiction. It's merely emphasizing that in, Christ, in a Christ follower's life, glory is to always be passed on to God. It's not for us. In fact, you can look at people who have received glory and held on to it and they don't know how to handle it. Humans are not made for it. I mean, you look at, well, I won't name any names, but some pop stars and people and how they get kind of weird and kind of freaky. Um, it's because they've been worshipped. They've been given glory, and they don't know how to handle it. Humans are not made for it. Glory is always meant to be passed on to God. So, you know, we've seen extremes of people who draw all the attention to themselves or those who are so afraid of self and self-glorification that they totally segregate and isolate themselves from the world. Well, that brings us to the, the next difficulty in what he's saying here in this verse. We are to do neither of these two extremes. We're to live in this world always with the ultimate choice between pleasing self or pleasing God. There again, there's that humility thing. This whole practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them might be seen as pleasing others, but ultimately it's, it's so we can please ourselves. You know, and that's the whole insidious character of sin. It just sneaks up on us. How it, something that appears to be so selfless may be just really a subtle form of selfishness. So what is supposed to be behind these practices of righteousness is our relationship to God. Our failure always seems to be forgetting our relationship to God when instead we need to forget ourselves. That's, that's the key. And again, in this portion of his message, Jesus is stressing that we are always in the presence of God, always in his sight, and he sees every action, every thought, and every intent of the heart. Now, there's a third difficulty that, that Jesus presents, and we're to be aware of in this matter of practicing right relationship and these actions connected to them. And that has to do with the idea of reward. Uh, the reality is that Jesus says our Father remembers and he rewards now, I know some folks, that, that's kind of strange. You know, there's kind of these, this teaching back in the early 1900s that we're, we're to be real altruistic and we're just supposed to live uh, the right life for, for no external rewards or anything like that. And, uh, and, but the truth is, is that Jesus says that the Father remembers and rewards. Jesus and the apostles taught that reward from God is a good thing to desire and a right kind of ambition. It's not bad. Uh, the difficulty of the question is really, who do you want reward from? Who do you want reward from? Jesus teaches that if you seek reward from men, from men, that's all you're going to get. There's going to be no reward from God. So here is a summation of just the principles that are found in just that one verse, Matthew 6, 1. There, one is that there are certain actions that we do out of a relationship 
and to devotion and in devotion to, to him. Two, the, these devotional, relational actions with our Father are to be done for him alone and are somewhat different than the good deeds done for the common good or the best interest of others. But whether they're private or public actions, whether or not they're noticed, all glory is to be passed on to God. And then the third thing is that we live in the presence of our Father at all times. And he knows the difference when our acts of devotion are really for him or if they're for ourselves. Jesus says that he will reward the choice for him, but the choice for recognition will only receive the praise of men. There will be no praise from your Father. So, verse 1 is kind of the overriding thing for the next three illustrations that Jesus gives. So let's take a look at the first of these uh, practices of righteousness or practices of right relationship or, or practices, practices of devotion, whatever you want to call them. The first is one that we may be surprised that's considered as part of a devotional or spiritual life. And it's recorded in the NIV as giving to the needy. But in more literal translations, it's referred to as giving alms, A-L-M-S. Almsgiving is a word that we're not really familiar with uh, these days. Uh, But it has a broader definition than just giving money to the needy. Almsgiving means helping people in need by the giving of money, time, or sweat, your muscle. Basically, anything to do with helping someone in need. All right? So if you remember uh, in the book of James, uh, we're, we're told that a pure practice of faith includes looking out after those who are in need. Jesus says, When therefore you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Jesus basically says there's a right way to practice this, and there's a wrong way to practice this serving or helping the needy. And I think most people understand this part about not announcing or bragging or drawing attention to yourself. I think most of us understand that. But the less obvious part of what Jesus teaches is don't even announce it to yourself. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What's meant by that? It's kind of of crazy sounding. Well, in other words, what he's saying is after having done something in secret, don't take your, your little book or your little blog or whatever it is and put down, well, I did that, and record a little gold star in a special column that, that marks, you know, a really great behavior. Jesus is saying, don't keep these kind of books at all. Don't keep spiritual ledgers or profit and loss accounts in your life. Just forget about it. Do things as you're moved by God and led by His Spirit, and then forget of all about them. Just forget it. Our love for God should be such that we have no time to think about ourselves. Besides, our, our, our Lord tells us that, that we don't need to keep account because God is doing that for us. It's great. He's the accountant. We don't have to worry about it. So the second practice uh, we move on from this uh, almsgiving, uh, serving, giving time or money or sweat to the needy, and move on to the, sec- the second practice of communion and devotion to Jesus. And, and he addresses it, uh, and it's praying to God, praying to God. Jesus says that there's a wrong practice of praying, and there's a right practice of praying. And here's what he says. And when you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites, 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will repay you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, you kind of, that verse also kind of hits on that, do not be like them. A kind of, again, a, a big part of what this whole Sermon on the Mount is about is that we are to be different in some way. That, that, that difference is internal. But the big thing, back to prayer here, what he's saying. Jesus warns that even in prayer, self can try to intrude even into this time. When you're really to be thinking of God. Jesus tells us temptation even finds us when we try to commune with God. Drats. Jesus should know. I mean, even he was tempted in the desert to think of himself, a time that he had set apart to pray and fast. Jesus says that the wrong practice of prayer is when your interest and focus is upon yourself rather than the one to whom you're praying. The second problem that he mentions is of many words. And Jesus addresses, it's the problem when we concentrate on the form and length of our prayers instead of focus upon God. Sometimes, you know, we look at great saints uh, who spend a lot of time in prayer or, or somebody like Dan Pinnison that was shown up there. But you know what? That saint didn't have his eye on the clock. That's not what he was thinking about. He knew he was in the presence of God and entered into eternity. And he was enjoying that. Prayer was his life, and there was nothing mechanical about it. You can also be a person who offers really beautiful prayers, but if it's done for the ears of men instead of the ears of God, you'll only get praise from men. You know, it's the poor, broken-hearted soul who, who, who cannot even frame a sentence, but who cries out in agony to God. They've reached God in a way and will have a reward that the other We'll never know. So what does Jesus say about right practice of prayer? Well, the obvious we've already mentioned is recognize who you're talking to. Recognize who you're talking to is, is the most simple thing. But in that recognition, there's also a realization of who God is and what God is. He is our Father. And is not a mechanical relationship like a vending machine. I'll put my quarter in and I'll get my candy out. It doesn't work that way. As our Father, we, we can't have some sort of mathematical notion that if I stay up all night with the Father, He'll give me what I want. That would be called, I'm, I'm trying to manipulate God. I'm trying to mani- manipulate my Father. Now, you might try to do that in your families, but it's not going to work with God. It may work on your dad or your mom, but it's not going to work with God. Relationship just doesn't work that way. The second thing is, that, is, is the process of exclusion. Jesus says, go to your inner room, shut your door, and pray to your Father. Now, this isn't a, a prohibition of public prayer. I mean, we, we just celebrated students going and praying on their school campus at CU at the Pole, and we encourage that. In fact, you know, uh, both, you know, praying in public uh, and, meet, and prayer meetings like that, both those things are encouraged in the scriptures. They're not prohibited. So here's what he's saying. There are certain things that we have to shut out, whether we're praying in public or whether we're praying in secret. 
You shut out and forget other people. Then you shut out and forget yourself. That's what's got to happen. That is what is meant by entering into your inner room. You can enter that inner room when you walk down a busy street or when you're walking from one room to another room in your house. You can enter that inner room with God and nobody knows what you're doing. Nobody knows. There's no value in entering into a a secret chamber somewhere and locking the door if the whole time I'm full of self and thinking about myself and priding myself on prayer. I might as well be standing on a street corner. I have to exclude myself and others. My heart has to be open entirely and only to God. Then there's a third thing that Jesus says about the right way of prayer. Approach the Father with the confidence of a child. Approach the Father with the confidence of a child. We must know that God is a Father who has our ultimate good in His mind. And He delights to bless us. And He's concerned about your welfare. He is. He knows what you need. He really does. So, just a summation of what Jesus said about prayer is realize who you're talking to, practice exclusion, the inner room, shutting out others and yourself, and approach with confidence of a child. Now, at this point, Jesus gives an example of what he means by praying like this. It's, it's what we've come to know as the Lord's Prayer um, in verses 9 through 13 in chapter 6. And it begins with recognition. Our Father. And we realize that we're talking to God, but that we've been invited into a family relationship through Jesus. He is not just His Father, but our Father. And that's just one of the most amazing things to think about that we've been invited into that, that we can call God Father. It's also adoration, the focus is upon Him. Now, the the process of exclusion immediately begins, and and the first portion of the prayer has nothing to do with self or with others. Jesus teaches us to pray that God's name is to be hallowed or honored. That's not a a line of praise or adoration. It's actually a request. It's a, a prayer, Lord, we pray that your name will be revered. I pray that I will revere your name. I pray that in my city, your name will be revered. I pray that in this church, your name will be revered. It's not about my name, Lord. It's about your name. He teaches us to pray for his kingdom, not our kingdom. He teaches us to pray for his will, not our will. And then the second portion then of the, of the prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, is, is coming to God as a child with confidence bringing our request simply before him. Give us our daily bread, God. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil, please. Jesus gives us a pattern for how to pray without selfishness and how to pray with right focus. If you're kind of struggling with your prayers and kind of feel like you're banging your head on the wall, I suggest that you look at this pattern and look at how this exclusion of self plays into it and this focus upon God, this adoration, and then also how this approaching God as a child is all shown here. Um, In verses 14 through 15, uh, Jesus kind of brings up this matter about forgiveness again. He comes back to it after uh, speaking what we call the Lord's Prayer. And he says, and he's not saying that grace is based upon what you do. 
Forgiveness is solely based on what Jesus did at the cross for you. I mean, that's clear throughout all the scriptures when we look at the scriptures in its entirety. But Jesus does present it as a test. He does present this as a test. If you're refusing someone forgiveness, then it could be possible that you have never truly experienced God's forgiveness. A true forgiving Christ follower couldn't keep themselves from forgiving. So, the third example, moving on from prayer, then into fasting. This third example of of, of a practice of devotion, of a life with God, is another practice that really might surprise some, uh, this, this idea of fasting. Jesus says, And whenever you fast, do not put a gloomy face on, as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Truly I say to you that they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you may not be seen fasting by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. So now, I know a lot of Protestants don't fast because they have a fear that it's some sort of earning grace thing invented by Catholics. But that is just plain ignorance. That's just ignorance. Okay? That's not true. Jesus didn't and never prohibited fasting. Jesus himself fasted 40 days in the desert. And, and he advocated that one day after his resurrection, there would be a great need to fast. The apostle Paul fasted with Barnabas before their first missionary journey. Fasting is something practiced by Christ followers. Fasting is, is usually what it is. is it's the abstinence from food for the sake of a certain special purpose, uh, such as prayer, meditation, or seeking, uh, a seeking of God for a specific reason, or because of an uh, uh, exceptional circumstance. But fasting can be abstinence from other things and food also. I know some people fast uh, media. They fast the TV or movies or uh, being on the computer or whatever. But basically, fasting is a special instance of abstaining from the world and feasting with God. That, that, that would be just a basic definition for you. It's, it's an instance, a special instance for abstaining from the world and feasting with God. If, if we make fasting, though, an end in itself, saying, well, because I'm a Christ follower, I have to fast on such a day at such a time because it's part of the Christian faith, then you might as well not do it. Don't do it. The special element in the act goes right out of it when you do that. You know, there are some people that fast for physical reasons, you know, uh, for a special diet and helps their intestines or whatever, and which you know, may be a healthy thing, but there's no spiritual element in it of itself. And again, the idea is that there is a special element attached to the fasting, and it usually involves a no to the physical world and a yes to God in some way. So like if I said, I'm going to fast from watching all TV and all movies, I would say no to that, but then I would say yes to spending time in some way with God. Does that make sense? All right. Same thing with if you're not going to eat a meal, if you're going to skip a certain meal, instead of spending that time where you'd be putting food in your mouth, you'd go spend time in some way with God to bring this special matter or special occasion, occasion whatever, before him. So that's the idea. Now, Jesus tells us when fasting that we're not to announce it or to draw attention to it. In fact, he says, don't go out of your way to announce it or hide it. You know, sometimes you could be just as obvious when you're trying to hide it and you blow it then. 
So someone who, you know, when he mentions this, uh, wash their face and anoint, anoint your head with oil, that's something that everybody did back in the day. That wasn't anything special. That wasn't unusual. That's what everybody did to freshen up. Jesus is saying, just be natural. Don't draw attention to yourself one way or the other. So in order to avoid looking sad, don't put a silly grin on your face. Just forget your face. Forget yourself. Forget other people altogether. Again, here's the the idea. The choice between self, pleasing self, or pleasing God. It's It's the interest in the opinions of other people that sets us off on the wrong path. So don't worry about the impression that you're making. Just forget about yourself and give yourself entirely to God. That's the idea. Now, um, I'd like the guys to come up here. We're going to close in a song together. And and I just uh, wrap this up here. And this has been an interesting time for me. And it's kind of been more of a teaching time instead of a preaching time. And when I teach... Uh, and, and also teaching Jesus, he's continuing on, and then I'm stopping. And so it's, it's really kind of odd for me because it always feels abrupt. I end where I feel like we should continue on. So uh, if you sense that, it's there. It's real. That is abrupt. Um, but the thing that, that I want you to remember today from each of these practices of relationship with God, uh, the serving of those in need, uh, giving to those in need, uh, prayer and fasting, Remember, in each of these practices, it's about relationship with God. It's the, the, it's, it's the focus. The focus is to be on Him, not on you. And the attention or glory is to be upon God. And that you're, you're always going to have the ultimate choice between pleasing yourself and pleasing God. The whole thing of self can be very subtle and very sneaky. And so we've got to keep it out of the way. You know, the problem is not underestimating yourself. It's, it's rather that we need to forget ourselves. So I know some people would say we have problems with self-image and so, you know, believe in yourself and all that kind of stuff. But it, that's not the problem. It really isn't. The problem is, is that we, we focus on ourselves way too much. Just turn your eyes off and turn your eyes at God and there's a whole lot of problems that will just fix themselves just in that one little act of getting your eyes off yourself. And it, it's also, it's the choice of humility. You know, we, we've talked about Micah and this verse where what's expected of us? Well, we're expected to act justly, uh, love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Well, sometimes humility, it, it isn't easy. Uh, sometimes it's... it's um, Walking through times where, where you're saying no to yourself, which is hard. Um, sometimes it's walking through the, the pain of things not working out. Uh, we've had some of that this year uh, in my family and in this church. And, um, but I feel like, again, uh, and it's kind of what's, what's happening in our country with some of the things with what's happening in the stock market and, and the, the economy. And people are, are really nervous and scared about that. And. It is a humbling thing when, when the, there's the pain of losing things. And, um, and there's humility that comes in that. Um, God is trying to teach us things. He really is. And so pay attention. Keep your ears alert. Keep the ears of your heart and the eyes of your heart alert. And see what he's trying to teach you in this. And um, right now, um, I'm going to pray. And then, and then we're just going to stand together and uh, close in a song. Heavenly Father... 
I know that when I hold your words up like a mirror to my life, that sometimes I see how fall I sh- how short I fall, and and just that I, I I just can't make it. I just I'm I come up short every time. And Lord, I know that um, that's always sometimes a, a humbling thing. But Lord, at the same time. Um, I recognize that I can't do these things without you, that I need you. And apart from you, I I really just can't do nothing. I I can't even, I can't even have the discipline for for daily life of exercise, eating, sleep, work, play. I can't even do those things without you, God, let alone trying to embody your words. So Lord, I, I, I do pray that you'd show me and show others here how to walk humbly with you and know that it is with you and that you are our Father and we are children and that you care for us. Help us to trust you and have confidence that you're going to guide us. And Lord, when we do those things to draw close to you, Lord, I, I pray that we wouldn't, we'd be able to shut out others, shut out ourselves and to totally, entirely open ourselves to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.